I can't remember the last time only one party voted to put in a Supreme Court justice. And what we're seeing with Judge Amy Coney Barrett and what we're likely to see in the very near future as she is voted to the Supreme Court, likely with only Republicans, no Democrats. Um, This is an unusual moment for our democracy. This is being rushed in at a time when her vote is being touted by no smaller people than the president of the United States as potentially helpful for his reelection chances. And there was another moment on Sunday where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that, uh, and this was in the context of what uh, Democrats might be able to undo after the next election, he said that they won't be able to do much about this for a long time. Again, specifically referencing Amy Coney Barrett. I want to talk about the one Republican who seems like she's not going to vote for Judge Barrett for this nomination to the Supreme Court. And I want to talk about this with Meredith Shiner, who's a good friend of mine who covered Congress for essentially the the Obama tenure uh, and has now blissfully removed herself from that coverage and is elsewhere. Meredith, thank you so much for coming back to At the Table. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for this wonderful piece that you've written for the New Republic, uh, where you talk about Susan Collins, the last Republican in New England. Thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Jared. It is always a pleasure to talk to you on the radio, whether it's streaming in a podcast or otherwise. I am very glad to have you. I'm also very glad that we spent the entire time in the green room talking about kids and our recent little additions, which I would love to get to at some point at the end of this conversation. But the most recent thing that you've produced, other than your your son, is this piece for... Other than a child, other than a human life, is this... 3,000 word piece on Susan Collins. I don't know, like, I feel like there are some people who would judge either as kind of tedious and annoying. Uh, but well, he, he's definitely I, yours. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud of both. Um, and I'm, I'm really actually proud of this piece and glad that the New Republic reached out to me about it and uh, commissioned it from me because it gave me the opportunity and we'll get into this I think especially um, with relation to the Amy Coney Barrett process and confirmation um, is about how broken the Senate is and how bad that is for our democracy and how Susan Collins is really an avatar for everything that is wrong with the Senate. Um, And so it was a great opportunity to to learn a little bit more about what's happening in Maine, um, what voters are thinking there, but then also what's happening in Washington and what's happened over the past decade, but what has been, I think, even more intense uh, in the almost four years that Trump has been president. Let's talk about exactly what you're you're alluding to here, because when we talk about the Senate being broken, and you talk about it at length in this piece, and you and I have mm-hmm. talked about it at length in just about every conversation we've ever had that has veered even close to politics— um, by the way, Meredith Shiner, a former uh, person who wrote for something referring to the Senate well, I'm as the... A, I'm still a current person, uh, but I am a former reporter. Well, no, but I was saying, I was saying <laughs> specifically someone who formerly wrote for something that referred to the Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I didn't, I did not choose the name, but it, it still sort of exists in the ether, the acronym WGDB, as if anyone 
would know what that was. I just wanted to, you know, you, you, you've just had so many accolades for the Senate in the past. And I just want to break down why you think it's so bad right now. This is actually the second piece that I've written this year on Susan Collins. And the first was actually exploring how the mainstream media created the myth of moderate Susan Collins. Right. And I think that there's just this infrastructure in DC, if we're going to pull back the curtain and how DC works, that in order to perpetuate both sides journalism, which has been the driving ethos of DC journalism, meaning Republicans say, Democrats say, or Republicans had this lie, so Democrats had this snafu, right? That you needed a figure like Collins who could be sort of portrayed as a moderate, whose um, ambivalence in advance of votes could create some sort of drama, right? How is Susan Collins going to vote is always a news cycle. And consistently, you know, throughout the Trump administration, she sided with Republicans almost 90% of the time. She voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh, despite the fact that she said that she was pro-choice consistently over the course of her career, but her voting record basically indicates otherwise. And, and when she's campaigning in Maine, when people talk about her race in Maine, they haven't forgotten the Brett Kavanaugh vote. And it's interesting and very senatorial and very, I think, accommodating of this idea um, that is perpetuated in the mainstream media of you know, the rules of Washington that Susan Collins basically said that she was voting no on Amy Coney Barrett um, on a process argument, saying that she didn't believe the vote should be held in advance of the the election, basically based on this rule that Mitch McConnell, um, can I say pulled out of his ass on a podcast? I'm going to say pulled out of his ass on a podcast before the last election because he wanted to basically keep the balance of the court 5-4 Um, when Antonin Scalia died. So she basically makes this process argument, but she says nothing about the extremism of Amy Coney Barrett. And I think her extremism is pretty well documented. And so Susan Collins is staking out this position that I argue both in the piece and to you has no real constituency. No one really cares about the timing of the vote. It's the ultimate outcome of the vote. And she refused to render a judgment on what she thinks. And frankly, if for whatever reason there weren't votes to confirm Amy Coney Barrett on today, tomorrow, whatever this it is when this podcast publishes, um, I think that there will be. The indications are that there will be. But if there weren't, I don't have any doubts that Susan Collins in a lame duck session, win or lose her race, would vote with Mitch McConnell if Mitch McConnell needed her vote. Um, basically to install this justice because she believes what Republicans believe. And the fact of the matter is, is that she always has. And that's the other part of this piece too, is sort of exploring, you know, who Susan Collins has always been and why it took this particular moment of time to really expose her to the world as that person. Is there any edification in looking at the difference? If you've already said that Collins is procedural argument doesn't have a constituency. And I'm inclined to agree with you. Mm-hmm. It's one of the many areas in which uh, I believe that you are right. And you being right is the foundation of our friendship. But is- uh, Also my marriage, most of my relationships, <laughs> people who tell me I'm wrong, I just don't keep around. It's I fair. would actually make a great president, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> 
Um, you would probably have done better on COVID. Um, so I'm looking at, is there any edification in looking at the distinction between, for example, the Murkowski vote and the Collins vote? And, and again, I don't, even asking the question, I feel like I know the answer is absolutely not. To the ultimate outcome, no. I think that they're both kind of garbage arguments. But actually, in this case, Susan Collins's actions are a little less garbagey than Lisa Murkowski's. Lisa Murkowski is basically saying, I think this is wrong, and yet I'm going to do it anyway. Um, So what you're referring to is basically today she voted against opening debate, but like will vote for the nomination. Like that that is completely intellectually untenuous. Um, Right. But, you know, Susan Collins is refusing to actually take a position on an issue or a series of issues. But at least she is saying, well, I think the timing is wrong and therefore I'm not going to do it. Um, But I also think she's probably doing it as a luxury of the fact that Mitch McConnell has enough votes. Like if, if, if there weren't enough votes, if Mitch McConnell didn't have those votes, I don't know that Susan Collins gets to be a no. At the risk of falling into the trap of the both sidesism that was at most of the outlets that either of us has ever worked at, is there any analog to the Biden argument where he is, when he's asked about this, says, you know, you, you'll find out the position, you know, down the road. And I think about their, the, the response in the sense that it makes perfect sense to me to not have an answer now. Because you don't know if Republicans are going to completely debase themselves, mostly debase themselves, or not debase themselves, the last of which has basically gone out the window in terms of this nomination to the to the Supreme Court. Is is there any analog that you see to Biden's position when it comes to the, the argument that you've made in this piece for New Republic about how Susan... Because, because you talk about how Biden, as a as a creature of the Senate has many of the worst tendencies still kind of baked into his thinking. Oh, for sure. My, like my dude announced that he wanted to have a bipartisan commission to explore. Finally, a a bipartisan commission. Like with the judiciary. Like, I don't think you need a nine month long commission to discover that Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme court seat. And then they confirm someone who like in all likelihood raped a woman, not, not to the seat that they stole to an additional seat later, I guess I should make sure that I clarify. So I'm right. not being inaccurate. Look, what they did in under the Obama administration, as soon as they won the majority was basically stop confirming people um, to, to dis to uh, circuit courts, to appellate courts, um, to, ambassadorships. I mean, they basically stopped the Senate because they don't believe in government. So they didn't want the government to function. And they wanted to leave a bunch of judicial vacancies in order to fill them. In fact, Mitch McConnell indicated that if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, that they wouldn't have allowed her to fill judicial seats. Like, who knows if she would have even been allowed to fill the Scalia seat. So, you know, there's there's a lot of conversation because Mitch McConnell is a genius at this, and I think reporters really take cues from him that Harry Reid broke the Senate because he was the one 
who changed the filibuster for non-Supreme Court judicial openings. But let's ask ourselves, why did Harry Reid do that? Was it because Mitch McConnell and Republicans refused to allow debate to open on the Senate floor on any of these nominees? Right. Thereby creating just an ocean of vacancies that would have been even larger for Donald Trump, who, by the way, as a reminder, was impeached, to fill? Had they been open? I mean, if if Harry Reid hadn't changed the filibuster rules, Donald Trump would have been able to appoint like a hundred at least more judicial positions in this country. This isn't just about the Supreme Court. This is about the entire judiciary and the fact that the minority party in this country has shaped the judiciary, possibly now for a generation, because under President Trump, they have they have basically nominated and confirmed judicial like uh like some of their judicial nominees were rated as unqualified by the American Bar Association I think that there have been I mean it's not even the occasional one I mean it's become the story of uh when when they are confirmed is the is the dog uh is the man that bites the dog at this point yeah, I don't know if the majority of the people they've submitted have been ABA unqualified, but there have been at least a half dozen. Um, Jen Bendry at the Huffington Post has done a really incredible job, actually, of covering the Senate Judiciary Committee and a lot of these hearings for some of these lower court positions. Um, and it, it's unprecedented to confirm ABA unqualified people, candidates, to the bench, to the federal bench. I mean, you, people have confirmed ideologues, um, but unqualified, I think, is is different, uh, and it's a shift, and they don't care. They're like 30-year-olds who could potentially serve in these roles forever. 30 is also uh, an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. Like, we're going to, they're going to continue to put forward young people who have partisan ideological positions. Um who are unqualified for these roles and whose views are far outside the mainstream. I mean, before this podcast, before we started recording, we were talking about how, you know, the week of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, the Pope came out like in favor of civil unions. So the Pope is to the left of Amy Coney Barrett. And that's going to be the highest court in the land. And what strikes me about it, too, is that she is out of touch with the majority of the people in this country in 2020. And as as other people have have in, in, in more eloquent ways than I am doing right now posited, you know, 40, 30 years, 40 years down the road in 2050 or 2060, Amy Coney Barrett is going to be that much more out of touch with where the American people are. This issue has already moved with such alacrity that I cannot imagine where our politics will be on. I mean, I I can't even imagine for our children how quickly this is going to become a non-issue. And yet for her, it's something. Well, Armageddon can come first. So we have that solace. I think we can lean on. Great. Let me, let me ask you specifically though about, cause I, I want to, I want to come back to the Senate and what we can do to fin it, to fix it potentially. But let's talk about Susan Collins, because like you said, this is your second piece on her recently. And and you talk about both the mythology of her and the actuality of her as problematic and that her moment right now in, in this cycle that she's in, because of both 
the way that she's been revealed, not changed, but revealed, and because of the way that the voting in Maine has changed, that this is a particularly uh, in- inflective moment for both her and the Senate. Yes. So I think that the um, structure of voting in Maine is actually really important to explore. And um, I feel like this is actually really undercovered in national media. Like I consider myself someone who pays very close attention to politics. And I really didn't know about ranked choice voting in Maine until I started reporting this piece. So ranked choice voting is also known as instant runoff voting. Uh, And a lot of good government groups want all of our elections to go this way. So basically, if you live in Maine and you're voting in this election, you either you're sitting at your kitchen table doing your uh, mail-in ballot or you're going into the ballot box, instead of just choosing your favorite candidate, you rank the candidates in your order of preference. And so when that becomes used is if no candidate gets a majority of the votes. So when you look at Republican Senate races across the country, a lot of Republican politics, and I don't think that this is disputable, I think this is objectively true, has been about basically playing to their base and hoping that their base is enough, and in, a, in many cases, winning with a, pro, a plurality of the vote and not a majority of the vote. So if you sort of tailor your politics to just getting the bare minimum enough to win, um, you're able to do so without attracting any independent voters, although I think that there aren't that many actual independent voters or split ticketers. Susan Collins won her last race six years ago with about 70% of the vote. She's barely cracking 40% this election, and some of her squishiness, I think, is because she's in an impossible position electorally. I don't think that it's possible for her to get 50% on the first ballot. And so if neither she nor Sarah Gideon, the Democrat, get 50%, then basically all of the preferences two through four get reapportioned to the top two candidates. And this is a huge problem for Susan Collins because, and and, and I think that this is why you see her waffling. And this was probably even what she was thinking about when she made the process argument um, about this Amy Coney Barrett vote, because she can't afford to lose Republicans at the base and she can't win without independents or Democrats. And I think that in the year 2020, that's an almost impossible position to be in. And one of the pieces of evidence that we have for this is that 2018 was the first election, federal election in Maine, where ranked choice voting was used. Basically, the people of Maine voted via ballot initiative to implement ranked choice voting. And, and we have that- Paul LePage to thank for that, which I love. I love the the um, the genesis of this in one of the weirdest and probably worst governors in our recent memory. Yes. And wait, we're going to come back to Paul LePage because a judge <laughs> that he picked for state court ended up being appointed <laughs> by Trump into a district p- judge position and gets involved in this story. So like, let's, let's yeah, let's get into our little time machine back to 2018 uh, and talk about the congressional race in Maine's second district. So the Republican incumbent was Bruce Poliquin and he won a plurality of votes on the first count in 2018. He won 46.4% of the vote, 
which is several points higher than Susan Collins has been this entire cycle. But he lost his seat to Democrat Jared Golden via ranked choice voting. He didn't like that outcome, so he sued to overturn the results in federal court. He challenged the constitutionality of ranked choice voting, but a district judge who was appointed by Trump after having been appointed by Paula Page to Amazing. a state court judicial position, I think he was appointed to the, uh, the state Supreme Court under LePage, upheld the results of the election. Paula Quinn loses. And the Democrat is now serving in a congressional district that was a long-held district for Republicans. So I'm sure that Susan Collins is trying to prepare some sort of legal case to potentially challenge the results should she lose to Gideon um, in an instant runoff. Um, But this has already failed in a district court. And should it go to appeals, that's a pretty liberal appellate region because it's based in Massachusetts. So... I think that uh, she could try to sue, but I'm not really sure how that would go for her. Um, well, maybe she's maybe she's keeping her powder dry on Amy Coney Barrett because she's uh, anticipating her own race going. No, I'm sorry that this isn't an Aaron Sorkin script. I apologize. Well, I mean, uh, look that that's definitely true in the presidential. I I don't think that that would actually hold true here. Um, But what I will say is that there are two other candidates in the race other than uh, Collins, the Republican, and Gideon, the Democrat. There's a Green Party candidate, and then there's a more conservative uh, candidate who calls himself the only pro-Trump candidate in the race. Um, And he apparently still um, has some sour grapes towards Susan Collins, whose team tried to get him off of the ballot. Uh, and legally challenged his position on the ballot. And so um, he, I think, would not really encourage his supporters to rank Susan Collins second. Um, And a lot of Republicans just don't believe in ranked choice voting. So a lot of Republicans could go in and vote and not actually put a second choice candidate Whereas if you are supporting the Green Party candidate in Maine, it's much more likely, according to political right. science, scientists and aides that I talked to, that you would put Gideon as your second choice. It's wild to me how this little change or, or you know, ostensibly small change can make such a big ripple. But then I think back to, you know, my, my background educationally was political science. And I think about like, it tends to happen. This is a Duverger's law where you just have these systems that tend to exist wherever you have first past the post. And to tinker with that in any way undermines this entire electoral strategy. And Collins could be kind of, I, I don't know, the, the, the match to the tinder of this that, that would make some, I, I, I don't know, does this have mo- momentum elsewhere or is this just a main thing like blueberries? <laughs> You know, I don't know. Look, uh, ranked choice voting has a lot of proponents, I think, again, in the good government advocacy space. Uh, I think that the argument is, is that uh, you end up with more um, democratic, small d democratic results if you let people vote their preferences and then apportion those votes in an instant runoff um, than you do if you let someone win with... 40% of the vote in any place. I mean, we right. see non-instant runoff um, kind of elections, right? Like like Georgia, Louisiana. Um, but I think 
when you have an instant runoff, look, a lot of money is going to be spent in Maine, a hundred million dollars they're projecting, which is insane. insane. I mean, if you look at the amount of money being spent in all of these Senate races and all of these states, it's all insane. I mean, Jamie Harrison having the largest hall, quarterly hall in the history of like anything, and he's running as a Democrat in South Carolina is wild to me. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at a place like Georgia or Louisiana, where they don't have instant runoff, where they just have runoff, and then they take the two top two candidates, that then introduces a whole different round of outside money that gets infused. And, and I'm not sure that that is nearly as effective as doing ranked choice voting and, and instant runoff. And I think, you know, when you look at Susan Collins and the dynamic that she finds herself stuck in based on her legislative actions, right? I think that that's another argument for in favor of ranked choice voting because right now, because she needs 50% of the vote, it's really difficult for her to put that together when the Republicans are so extreme, independents are losing their appetite for her because they don't believe that she's independent and Democrats are a hard pass. Um, How do you, how do you put together 50? And if she had, if she had had to spend her entire term thinking about how to put together 50, if she had spent the last six years of her political life thinking of how to get to 50, her behaviors, I think, would look a lot different than they did. And because she wasn't, because, you know, she was a party line Republican, I I think she's going to lose. And I think that that's problematic. And and look, I don't think that it would have an impact in every state of the union because there are plenty of states where a Republican could probably easily get to, to 50. Um, but, I, but I think it would change the way people would have to think about how they cast their votes and how hard they work um, in constituency services. Although, you know, I heard from even people who aren't supporting Susan Collins, the one positive thing that they will say about her is that she works really hard and that, you know, she, because she's been serving the people of Maine for so long, her constituent services are pretty solid. Uh, But I don't think that's the case for a lot of the like extreme right-wing senators. Well, and I think about some of the very superficial level consumption that I've made of news about her race and everything I'm seeing is so traditional. I I remember reading a piece where she was talking about, you know, I will be the chair of Senate appropriations, you know, once I'm reelected, if Republicans hold the majority. And I think about how little that matters in Trump's America, where, you know, Congress is essentially has rolled over and accepted everything that he's done. And, and this position, which may have made a decent argument in a constituent services minded election in maybe, you know, her first two cycles when she got, you know, elected in 96 and then reelected in, in 2002. I just don't see that in the, the, in, in the Republican party, even before Trump, let alone after Trump. I think that that's right. I mean, look, chairmanships used to be really powerful when the government did things like (laughs) the appropriate. No, I mean, truly, I'll tell you a story about the 2014 cycle, which was the last time Susan Collins was up for reelection. I traveled to eight different states. I was working uh, for Yahoo News at the time. 
Um, I did not call, I did not travel to Maine because that was not a close race. Obviously, she won with almost seventy percent of the vote. But I was um, in Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, uh, following the Mitch McConnell coal country bus tour, and I almost died on Hal Rogers Parkway because it was pouring rain and everyone in Kentucky drives like 120 miles per hour, even if it's in like a like thunderstorm like you've never seen before and the roads are flooding. But I was like, this would be a horribly ironic way for me to die on Hal Rogers Parkway. Everything in Eastern Kentucky is basically named after Hal Rogers because he was the House Appropriations Chair and he was able to bring money back to Kentucky because there was a time when still in Congress, by the way, there was a time when Congress used to pass appropriations bills. And I'm not one of those people who's like, Oh, regular order. If we just went back to regular order, the world would be all rainbows and sunshine. I think that's the Joe Biden position, but it's also the the Paul Ryan position, you know, another blast from our past. Oh, well, no, I think I think that that's no. I'm going to challenge you on that. I think that Paul Ryan used to talk about regular order as a cover for basically getting rid of like all government. Programs. You're you're absolutely right, and I I was mostly joking because, about Paul Ryan. Yeah, another guy who was teaching uh, about ethical budgets at Notre Dame last year, right? Let's just not talk about uh, my my alma mater if we can. If I'm putting that back in my back pocket. No, 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 but. Republicans at least used to believe in some level of government. And so if you believe in government, you believe in government spending in some capacity, you believe in appropriations. I mean, before Barack Obama, uh, there used to be earmarks and members of Congress used to actually be able to direct funding to their district. The, The fancy term for earmarks is congressionally directed spending. Um, and Congress basically ceded all of that power to the executive so the executive could choose where money go would go. So it was an argument that was, I think, championed by Tea Party conservatives, embraced by Barack Obama, um, against the wishes of then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Uh, but basically, like if you were a member of Congress, you used to be able to bring back money to your district, and you could especially do that if you were appropriations chair. Now, today, you can't make that argument because either there's um, a government shutdown because they can't figure out how to fund the government or there are continuing resolutions that basically maintain current levels of spending and Congress doesn't really have the power or at least any singular member of Congress doesn't really have a lot of power to basically bring money back through appropriations bills to their states or districts. So you're right. Some of those conventional arguments don't really hold water. And honestly, even when they were true, they haven't really worked with voters. I mean, I think about Mary Landrieu. That was another state that I went to in 2014 in Louisiana, and she lost to Bill Cassidy. She was the chairwoman of the Energy Committee, I believe. Um, She brought so much money to Louisiana after Katrina, like hurricane, BP oil spill, all of those things, like she was in a position because of her seniority to really uh, impact the state financially through the power of the federal government. And voters of Louisiana were like, no, thanks. So, you know, that didn't work six years ago. It's definitely not going to work today and especially doesn't work for a Republican. Um, And I think that, you know, she's sort of 
trying to play this part, but there's no audience for it. And that's a huge challenge for her because I think people saw her and now that she's been seen, the people who have seen her and don't like her are a no. And the people who are super right wing, like they're sort of skeptical of her because they still sort of bought in to the whole myth of moderate and they're not really energized by that. I think that that's the challenge. She doesn't energize anyone. But in addition to not exciting voters, I think we're we're getting toward the other main point that you make in the piece, which is that the Senate itself has these fundamental issues and that Collins is a, a representative and a harbinger of some of these breakdowns over her tenure since, uh, you know, since back when Chuck Schumer was just a, a, a congressman from New York, not a senator from New York. Uh, well, I mean, if you look at his official Senate picture, I still think it's actually from him being a congressperson <laughs> in the 80s. So you can, it's easy to imagine. It's, look, um, as a former New Yorker, I, I look fondly back on those days. One of the things that I talk about when I'm trying to really sort of pull back the curtain on the Senate is that I go back to the very origins of what the Senate's design was and how the framers thought of the Senate, uh, which I guess is sort of appropriate considering we are sending Amy Coney Barrett, originalist, to the Supreme Court. Let's take a 20-second time out to talk about the Constitution. James Madison referred to the Senate as a quote-unquote necessary fence against the quote-unquote fickleness and passion of the public and the, the public being represented by the House of Representatives. George Washington compared the Senate to a saucer to cool the hot tea of legislation. And every time I think about that, actually, I'm going to call my second consecutive 20-second timeout. Uh, I'm a really bad head back <laughs> You're gonna- coach. You're burning through these. Yeah, yeah burning I don't know. through these. We're like not even in the fourth quarter, I don't think. Who knows? I haven't been keeping time in the game. Um, when I think about the the cooling saucer hot tea thing, I actually think about Anthony Weiner. Um, oh, Jesus. Because. I wasn't ready. For, I, I was the one who mentioned New York Congress people, yeah. but now no, you've really. Yeah, we're, we're going back to this. So I'll never forget the first State of the Union I covered. I was at Politico. It was. Um, 2010, so it was Barack Obama's first State of the Union, and the House had passed a health care bill, but the Senate was sitting on it because Barack Obama wanted to wait for Max Baucus to work it through a committee and I think would still be waiting for that to resolve itself if he had just sort of let it run its course. Uh, mm-hmm. But Anthony Weiner at the time was, if you remember, before all of the scandal, I think probably one of the Democrats' top messengers particularly on like places like MSNBC. And so he was running around the Capitol after um, Barack Obama's State of the Union, where Barack Obama finally challenged the Senate to do something, calling the Senate the saucer and telling, basically saying that it's time for them to like heat up the tea and get her done. Uh, and so when I think about that analogy, I think about Anthony Weiner. And now I've digressed from my point, but I just wanted to share that story for reasons I can't even fathom. I think maybe it's just the exhaustion of having a newborn at home. But anyway, let's get to the point. Uh, I really, I'm really scared about where your mind went that you do have a newborn and yet you were able to even bring yourself to Anthony Weiner. Like that to me, I hadn't thought of him up until he was back in the news for some mm-hmm. reason. God 
godforsaken reason in the last few days uh, during my child's lifetime. And I was so I I look back and I'm like, those were happier days. I'm and a, now you've ruined this for I'm everyone. Many multitudes, Jared. Uh, so anyway, true. so founding fathers, the Senate's a necessary fence. It's a saucer to cool the hot tea. The most generous reading of this is to basically adopt the modern parlance that like political pundits use of the adults in the room to keep radicals mm-hmm. in check, especially in the nascent years of the Republic. But another view, and this is the view I really wanted to bring to the surface, was the Senate was always designed to subvert the will of the people and protect the interests of the powerful. That started with slavery. It extends to modern day injustices that favor rich corporations and their lobbies. And when you think about the infusion of money from billionaires who really get to manipulate Congress, they can do it through the Senate. And this has ended poorly for everyday Americans on everything from gun violence to income tax or corporate tax rates, right? And so if we're thinking about what the Senate is and what it's supposed to achieve, it's all predicated on this idea that there is this, con- this class of considered moderates, both at the center left and the center right, who are going to come together so that way, like the best interests of the republic are protected and advanced by the Senate. Well, there, here's a big, 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 big problem is if you have one party that is completely comprised of bad faith actors, right? People who say, well, I can see all of the evidence that like Donald Trump probably is guilty of what the House said he was guilty of when they impeached him, but I'm not going to vote to remove him from office. Which is the position of at least several, enough to make the swing difference. Enough. Like Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, who's retiring, basically made that argument, right? If if they're not going to come together to do anything, if the whole objective of one party is basically to pack the judiciary and to give massive corporate tax breaks at the expense of everything else, and that's what Mitch McConnell was referring to, basically, in that quote that you read at the top of this recording, uh, this idea that some of the stuff can be undone in four years, but this is forever, that's what he's trying to say then the Senate is broken and it's irreparably broken. And this is a really important and significant lesson that Joe Biden like needs to learn and he needs to grapple with because it's not the 1970s anymore. Like he served in the Senate for 36 years. He loves the Senate. He loves the Senate, like what he believes the Senate should be. I mean, he, in his book and to this day quotes Mike Mansfield, basically saying you gotta like, look at every senator and think about what their voters and their constituents saw in them to send them there. And you have to respect them for that. Like Mike Mansfield was born 103 years ago, (laughs) you know, like this is not the world we're living in. And it's especially not the world Joe Biden is living in. Republicans led by Mitch McConnell took a decades old floor speech of Biden's and used it as justification to steal a Supreme Court seat in 2016. Like, Republicans continue to support the president leading these sham investigations based on Russian propaganda on his son, Hunter. Like, they're doing all of these things that are directly 
involving and impacting him. And he thinks that somehow they're going to just snap back when Trump is gone, if Trump is gone. And my question is, snap back to what? Because in eight years of the Obama presidency, if he didn't see Mitch McConnell, I don't, I don't know what to say or to do about that because he's, he do, he's not interested in the kind of progress that Democrats are interested in. And I don't think that he's going to play along. And so I think Susan Collins is the person who is supposed, the myth of Susan Collins, the Susan Collins that Susan Collins is supposed to be, is the person who needs to exist for the Senate to work. If you're a person who believes that the Senate can work and she's sort of a sham. And so is the whole idea of the Senate, I guess is the overall takeaway of my point. If eight years of being Barack Obama's vice president wasn't enough, what's going to be enough of a wake-up call, even if Joe Biden isn't the swamp monster? So Harry Harry Reid, who I think was very good at his job as Senate Majority Leader, has been very honest that he thinks that the filibuster should go away, that it has been used for too long to basically blockade progress and it needs to go away. And anyone who thinks it doesn't need to go away is like in for an awakening. Right. And so his quote today, and I think in part because he didn't want to directly challenge Joe Biden right before the election, was basically like Joe Biden should give Republicans three weeks to prove that they actually want to like do something. And if they don't get on board in three weeks, he should just blow it up. And I think that that's what his way of saying that he should just blow it up. Yes. And I think Joe Biden is actually sort of in a box on the filibuster because if you recall... Um, in Barack Obama's eulogy at John Lewis's funeral, he called for the filibuster to be abolished. Um, so I think that there are a lot of voices, and I would consider Barack Obama to be, you know, center left, who think that this needs to go away. And I think that Joe Biden, if he wants to have any legislative accomplishments, if he wins, needs to do it. No one is forecasting 60 Democrats. I mean, that's just not... I, I don't think even the most, uh, you know, blue positive poll I've seen is is forecasting that. Now, you know, who, who knows? Uh, you know, maybe maybe that's the fever dream that uh, that people really need to start thinking about. But that's not where we are. And so, in a world where if Democrats are able to take back the majority in the Senate, at least, um, yeah, I feel like there's a moment for for Joe Biden. But I guess so. Is Joe Biden either too much of the the Senate swamp monster to to wake up to this fact, or is there some other way to to get to where we need to be, whether it's electoral reforms like you were talking about earlier with ranked choice voting or other institutional reforms that the Senate could do, like the elimination of the filibuster? How do we get to there? Oh, I mean, there are so many things that we need to do, like in order to write this ship. Uh, you're right, there are structural electoral reforms. Ranked choice voting would be great. Uh, fair districting would be great. Eliminating like and limiting money in politics would be amazing. But all of the, those things are going to take a lot of time. And they're also going to take legislation, um, particularly if the Supreme Court is uh, stacked with conservatives. So um, I think that the, fil- the legislative filibuster has to be eliminated. Um, and it has to be one of the first things that a Democratic Senate does under a Democratic president should the Democrats take back both the Senate and the White House. Do you think that there's an appetite for these big changes? Again, having covered the Senate for as long, uh, co- covering Capitol Hill as long as you have. Yeah. 
I think the answer is yes. I mean, when you have someone like Joe Biden, or not Joe Biden, Joe Manchin, saying that he has to think about potentially eliminating the filibuster. I mean, at this point, the only person who hasn't expressed openness to it is Dianne Feinstein. Uh, and that's it in terms of the Democrats. And I don't think after the Amy Comey, Comey Barrett hearing, she has any political capital in the party whatsoever. I mean, I saw, I think it was Chris Coons, Senator Coons, saying that he'd be open to changing the the makeup of the courts and expanding the number of people on it. So I, I... I'm hopeful, but I'm also, I know that there is a, there, there is a, a, a lot of institutional inertia, as you rightly pointed out, historically relevant, uh, and, and in, you know, built into the system. Uh, it, it's exactly what it's for is to have inertia, but it makes me wonder if the people in Joe Biden among them who have emerged from that environment or are still steeped inside it, uh, can't see beyond, beyond where they are. I mean, look, I think it. everything would look very different in January 2021 if there were a President Elizabeth Warren versus a President Joe Biden. But I think Joe Biden is going to have to be open to some of these changes in order to get anything done. And I think that he'll want to get something done. Meredith, the last question that I want to ask about the peace in New Republic is it's a, it's a little bit about Joe Biden, but it's also, you know, the, the piece that you've written is, is ostensibly about Susan Collins. And you kind of alluded to this before, but I, I kind of want to nail you down on it a little bit, because do you think that the voting out of the last Republican in New England, do you think that a Supreme Court nominee voted in with only Republican support? Do you think that any of this in the next few weeks is going to wake Joe Biden up, do you think that he will become more aware based on what you've assessed to be the likely outcome from this election? I don't want to prognosticate, you know, how his perceptions or perspective might change. I think what I will say is that in the event that he is deferential at all to congressional Democrats, which is what I think, you know, he his worldview when he was vice president was that congressional leaders should be at the table. I think that a lot of congressional Democrats, I think a lot of Senate Democrats have looked at what has happened and have recognized that it's broken. And I I just want to quickly read the kicker to this piece at the New Republic, not to spoil it, but to hope to get people to read it um, and to answer your question, I think, in part. You know, the Senate, contrary to Biden's stated beliefs, cannot overcome years of cynical partisanship with a little bipartisan grease and a handshake. Collins is the foremost evidence that there is no one on the other side to shake an outstretched hand. The Republican Party is broken, and because of that, so too is the Senate. Perhaps the best case outlook for Collins's political legacy is that her defeat this fall convinces Biden and the rest of his party that the Senate they once knew is dead. If Democrats win back the White House and the Senate, they will need to accept this truth in order to rebuild the government Susan Collins with feigned disappointment watched burn. I think if you look at the last four years, if you look at the last 12 years, Republicans have staked out a position that isn't just limited government, which is where they they used to be, I think, when Joe Biden first arrived in the Senate, to no government at all. And we're seeing the consequences of that in real ways. 
when you think about the more than 200,000 Americans who have died because of a virus that wasn't controlled because we gutted government agencies and the Senate confirmed people who were unqualified to top positions or worse, didn't even confirm people at all because the president of the United States felt either he didn't need to submit nominations to fill positions or he could have acting heads of major agencies. We're seeing what happens when there's no government functioning at the core of our republic. And I think if we're going to rebuild that, it's going to take some serious change and it's going to take serious change at the Senate because the House is under Democratic control and they've passed plenty of bills. I mean, Nancy Pelosi passed the second COVID relief bill in May and we still haven't seen anything that's been enacted into law. And people are literally going hungry. People don't have enough money to take care of their families. People have lost their jobs, so they've lost their insurance in a time of global pandemic. And people are getting seriously sick and people are dying. That is the result of years of chipping away at the government. And if you're someone who cares about the government, and I think that Joe Biden does, and I think this is also the difference between being center left and pretending to be center right. Like the, the right end of the spectrum is no government at all. The left, I think that there's a lot of agreement on what some of our problems are. There's a lot of agreement, particularly on healthcare, right? Every Democrat who was in the primary believed in universal coverage. They disagreed on how to get there. And so the principles that unite the left, I think, could be powerful if the people who are hung up on some of the like institutional hoopla that has so long defined Washington can get over it and be willing to blow it up a little in order to get to an outcome that actually better serves people. Well, you're asking people to, you know change on procedural issues and that's a really big ask in, in washington as you know uh i mean look man <clears throat> people in dc should have representation in congress what? people in puerto rico should have representation in congress like thousands of people maybe up to four thousand people died in puerto rico because of hurricane maria and part of the reason that happened is because they didn't have anyone in congress who has a vote who could lobby to get aid sent there. When a hurricane hits Florida or when a hurricane hits Louisiana or Texas, there are elected officials in Congress who can fight to secure funding. And when you don't have a vote, you don't count as fully as other Americans. And that's garbage because all of the people who live in Puerto Rico, all of the people who live in D.C., like they're paying taxes, they're American citizens, they should have representation in Congress. And this argument that they shouldn't have senators because it, they would be Democratic is Republicans telling on themselves. Well, obviously. Because Republicans could fight for those seats too. Well, and I, I think the, the you and I, you know, our, our time with specific governmental coverage, obviously our roles were very different. Our, the beats were very different. Everything was, there's a lot of time overlap. And I think both of us saw a lot of these patterns devolve in truly disastrous ways 
And I just, I, I hope that somebody, whether it's uh, Joe Biden or whoever else can shake him by the lapels, is willing to, to do the kind of uh, explosion of, of procedural, uh, I think the word you used was hoopla, so I'll use it again, uh, because it doesn't really mean anything if it's not serving the people. And there's no, there's no virtue in a tradition or a, or a procedure if it's not actually working for the people that you represent. At least that's what... You and I believe, and I think there are a lot of other people who might believe that too. I think that's right. I'm going to ask you one other question. It's not about this piece. It's actually about a piece. People who have listened to this conversation for an amount of time know that in addition to being someone who's extremely smart and who writes extremely well and who can sit here and mock me gently whenever I try to say something about Paul Ryan, they also may have heard the conversation you and I had at this point about a year ago when we were talking about a piece that you wrote for the daily beast and also a a moment in your life that was truly tragic that led to the piece that you wrote. And, and certainly a lot of conversations you and I have had over the last uh, few years. And we're talking of course about how, how your first, how your first child died and the legislation that made its way through Congress that would have criminalized both some of your actions, but more importantly, some of the actions of medical professionals who took care of you when, when your, your first son was, uh, born at, at 23 weeks. Um, I, I, I want to ask about it, not just because everyone loves a callback, but also because we've mentioned several times in this conversation that you have a, a six week old son. And I just, I, I was. I don't think we're going to have any fun news if we talk about Susan Collins anymore. So I'd like to ask about about this instead. Well, I'm glad that you asked. And you know, I was thinking about our conversation actually a few weeks ago and how grateful I was to have it um, and to have sort of this time capsule of where my mind was at and where I was um, last September uh, because when we talked. It had basically been a month since uh, I lost our first son, and uh, I guess I should say we lost our first son, and you know, I was thinking a lot about that too. I'm sure you saw, but Chrissy Teigen and John Legend lost yes. a pregnancy, and they were very open about their loss, and they're much more powerful, much more famous people uh, than me, and have a huge platform, and I was really grateful to see them showcase the kind of honesty, pain, and grief that they were experiencing because I know how transformative that honesty was for me personally, Um, how I felt encouraged by knowing that there were people in the world, both in my life and sort of on the internet. Uh, and it's, it's very, it's very weird to say that there was something that po- that was positive that came out of the internet who either shared their stories generally or for the first time about loss that they had endured personally, because it's such a taboo subject. Um, but before we, we started recording, you know, one of the things that I think has been important and I've a little bit alluded to it on social media is, is to talk about the fact that, you know, a few months after I lost the first pregnancy, I got pregnant again. Um, and I had, I spent a lot of time pregnant. I don't know what I did in a previous life to spend like 18 months out of nine, uh, 20 months pregnant. Um, 
in various stages of pregnancy. I don't don't even have a uterus Uh, and my uterus just hurt a little bit. I spent six months out of a year in a first trimester of pregnancy, which is really actually the worst. Um, But we have a very beautiful little boy. Uh, He's sleeping in the other room with uh, my husband. And, uh, you know, I'm a little tired, um, but I'm so grateful. I think that's that's the thing that I felt more than anything is that, you know, I wouldn't want to endure the loss that we endured. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But I think having gone through it, I am so much more appreciative, I think, for everything having worked out this time the way we wanted it to. And I think that I feel a great sense of pride in our commitment to seeing through something that we wanted. I think that in so many aspects of life, it's really easy for something to go wrong and to feel defeated. But I think the strength that you gain if you're able to build it to sort of, to persist and to get what you want. I mean, having having a child was something that we wanted and losing a child didn't change that desire. And so we had to combat any sort of anxiety or fear that we might have felt in order to get to this day. And so we're here and we have this beautiful boy. He's funny, but unintentionally currently. Mm-hmm. So um, just like his mother. He, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, oh, it's accidental. I mean, that's because women aren't funny. You know that, Jared. Oh, obviously. Um, Certainly not my wife and, and your husband's wife. Uh, so, you know, we're we're happy. I mean, we're a little tired, but we're... We're everyone's doing well. Everyone is healthy, so and we feel extraordinarily grateful for that. You know, I I feel like one of the things that I've tried to do over and over again in this conversation is, if you're going to make the mistake of giving a damn of what I think about anything or what the people I have chosen to join me think about anything, is that you know we can we can justify that with a little bit of vulnerability. And, um, I, I am so grateful for every aspect of our friendship and how it's changed in the last year. Um, and, and the way of you losing your, your first son and us having ours and then you having yours and just this thing that we both wanted to share since, you know, I've wanted this for a long time and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying anything profound right now, except to say that, uh, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the, both the, the pain that you felt and the way that you shared that, but also the joy that you feel now and the way that you're able to share that as well. And I can only imagine that there is, um, that there will be more joy once we can actually, you know, see each other in the, in the real world once again, because the internet is occasionally good, but, um, you know, I, I miss you guys a lot and I would, I would like our, our, our kids to, you know, meet and play and, you know, do all those other things at some point. Well, we miss you too. And on a much lighter note, like I'm not pregnant anymore, so I'm definitely going to be able to drink on election (laughs) night. And honestly, that's another thing I feel extremely grateful for. Which is for. also my birthday. So please enjoy your time drinking. I, I saw that I saw that on my iPhone calendar the other day, and I was like, wow, that is either going to be an extreme high or an extreme low. 
we'll test it out. Yeah, it, it falls. It could be all of it could be all of the things at once, actually. It usually is. I'll be honest with you. As someone who doesn't particularly love my birthday most years, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, um, being pleasantly surprised this one. So we'll we'll see what happens. I guess. Anyway, I, and on that note, yeah. um, <laughs> Meredith Shiner is, in addition to being a, a lovely human being and a really brilliant writer, I actually think it's rude of her to take a leaf out of Pete Buttigieg's figurative and literal book. And while you were watching Tiger uh, Tiger King or whatever, uh, writing these these thoughtful, you know, reported pieces and and caring as much as she does, despite the fact that she's gotten, I, I'm assuming, no sleep and is using her. F- you know, brief moment of alone time to sit here and talk to me from, from a guest bedroom in her home while I'm in a guest bedroom in my home. Um, she's, she's brilliant and funny and despite being a woman, obviously. Uh, and just, just, I'm so grateful for the time, the peace, the friendship, the, the everything. And just, um, thank you for spending a little bit of time with me at the table. Well, thank you for having me, Jared. <laughs>